Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. I'm Michelle Haygood, and this is On Air, a podcast focusing on conversations with artists and creatives from Centrum's residency community. I am broadcasting to you from the lands and waters of the Coast Salish people in a place known as Katai to the Sklalem people and today known as Port Townsend, Washington. This podcast is focused on bringing artists together in community to explore the ways that place, process, and the personal intersect. We dive into the many ways that artists are responding to the current times, affecting change, and finding sustenance during health, climate, and social crisis. Join us and take an hour to be in residence and unpack your own relationships to creativity, time, and place. Thank you for being here and enjoy this episode. This is Michelle Hakewood. I'm so happy to be here with you today and to be bringing you a conversation with the artist Megan Hildebrandt, who was a former artist in residence here at Centrum and also happens to be a longtime friend and colleague of myself. I invited Megan to help us kick off this experiment in podcasting that has become a new branch of Centrum's residency program. And we are going to have a dialogue about the ways that Megan's practice and work, both in teaching and in her drawings and in her history with performance, have all been impacted and affected by the various places she has lived, by her battles with cancer, as well as her journey as a parent and her growth as an educator. And you're in for a treat to learn from someone who has been a long time model for me of the ways that art and our lives are completely intertwined and can exist in not just harmony, but in powerful and impactful ways. And Please look up Megan's work. We will link to her website in the show notes and enjoy this conversation. I'm very excited to kick things off with you, Megan. Thank you for being here. Megan is a cancer survivor and recently had her second child and it's much more than that uh her life these life events have greatly impacted her creative practice confronting your own mortality at age 25 and then experiencing the fragility and strength of birth you've become obsessed with tracking time documenting the small routine moments of life that loop and repeat and you want to give the viewer intimate personal moments that capture 
the both fleeting and endless seconds of being alive. Megan's work explores autobiography, the passage of time, illness, narrative, and recovery from trauma via figurative and abstract drawings and paintings. Megan attempts to recover time lost to cancer treatment and to track the development of a new self and her young children. Her work serves as a touchstone to mark a life both interrupted and reinvigorated. Thank you, Megan. I am going to let you share much more of your story, but I've been following your work for, we were talking earlier, 14 years. And one thing that I thought would be a good place to start is I know that you have moved a lot. <laughs> and because our show, one of our kind of pivoting points and, and points of exploration is thinking about some of the relationships that place have on practices. And so maybe I thought you could give us a little more information about yourself via a walk through your places and share some snippets of what that journey has been like for you. Like a tour of my house? Well, that could work. No, no. <laughs> Look at the tour of my house, right? Um, <laughs> right. So I'm thinking about uh, growing up north of Detroit, right? Um, in sort of white flight Detroit, where everyone, uh, white flight Oakland County, Michigan, where it was very rare to encounter anyone that didn't look exactly like me in terms of skin tone and everyone for the most part was like upper middle class that's where i grew up and then i went to ann arbor for university of michigan for my for my undergraduate and then i moved to baltimore where i met you michelle baltimore was the best thing that has ever happened to me i mean besides meeting my husband, but Baltimore was like, they're equal. Okay, so like Baltimore, moving to Baltimore in 2006 was the formative, transformative, like it was like the kick in the butt that my 22 year old self needed. I got out of my home state, all of a sudden I was for the first time in my life, uh, often a minority in a town with so much diversity and so many black Americans. And all of a sudden I didn't have a car. <laughs> and so I spent my time in Baltimore at a different residency and also working at um, the Walters Art Museum. But I spent, as I think about my time in Baltimore, I spent walking. I just walked around Baltimore all the time. Like I think at some point I had a bike, sometimes I took the bus, but I just got to know that city really deeply by walking, walking through it, walking through places that are uh, growing up in a white flight suburb of Detroit. Like I can imagine my dad's head, my dad's voice in my head being like, don't go over there. And I just walking and meeting new people and exposing myself to everything I didn't know and realizing Baltimore as a place in my practice hit me over the head with what I didn't know. And that was a wonderful place to land. And I got really, really interested in the history of Baltimore and wanted to know a lot about its residents and why the neighborhoods were gentrifying and changing so fast. Um, and that completely influenced my practice. When I moved to Florida, 
for graduate school in 2009. I was physically like the strongest I've ever been, like probably because I was doing all that Baltimore walking. But um, I also had been training with collaborating with another artist up in Maine to like become a lumberjill, which is, you know, the female version of a lumberjack. And so I had been doing this performance actually right as I left Baltimore, like the day before. I and forgot I, about that project. You know, I know, right? It's like, I was like doing this, like, I was like working, I was, I was just like doing crunches and doing, and I was like gonna chop down a tree in Baltimore, right? And I did it and it's like, I, it's so, it, to me it's very fitting, fitting somehow that the morning I woke up after this amazing, very physical performance, I, I woke up to go drive to Florida and I felt a lump, which ended up being, you know, it doubling, tripling, quadrupling in size over the next day as I drove to Florida. So I guess we're on the tour. We're on the tour now. I therefore spent this was before the Affordable Care Act. So I did spend a lot of time trying to get adequate care and adequate health care and to be seen. But long story short, I guess, a month into graduate school, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and was set on a chemo regime from the September of my first year at my MFA program to April. And so that created, I didn't like Florida very much, you can imagine, right? And so like that made me just like yearn for Baltimore. I was like, Florida, damn it, you did this to me, right? Like, and then it was also making me yearn for other residencies I had been at, like, right? So like in between it, I was doing a lot of residencies and leaving Baltimore often during my time in Baltimore. One of, the, one of them was at Centrum. And I was, I was literally, I think, back in Florida, thinking about all the traveling I had done for my art. Vermont, right? Virginia, New Mexico, Washington. And thinking like, I would rather be anywhere but here in Florida because I had decided that Florida made me get cancer. But so the relationship of place in the work this is when I guess I started to um, turn more to uh, autobiography because my whole first year, I started making these like these drawings of alligators coming out of the swamp and attacking me or like, you know, iguanas falling out of the trees and giving me a concussion, right? Like it was like all um, Florida and nature attacking me. It was about sinkholes, like terror of sinkholes. And then I remember someone saying to me, well, you know, you're just making it all about cancer and you just don't realize it. Because of course I was. I mean, cancer was the sinkhole. Cancer was my fear of being struck by lightning. It all was. So at that point, place was, place had been playing the pivotal role in my work, I'd say, mm -hmm. before that. And at that moment, they, maybe my second and third year after treatment was done and I was continuing to get a lot of scans and take different medications but it was like the site the landscape became really inward at that moment and for I think eight years after that all of my work was really abstract and it was really just about 
me trying to recover back time I felt like I had lost um, and me trying to process my body as the site and as the, uh, the land that had been like traumatized. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And so this is when you were at this, you started the series or you ended your graduate school is this right with the series of drawings that you were doing marking yeah. time yeah with cancer remind me what that series yeah was counting titled radiation. counting radiation counting radiation yeah mm -hmm. okay yeah and a lot of people think like oh like she must have had radiation but it was actually you know it's like you have i i you all get radiation if you're con if you're having you know i had a 16 ct scans in the first year that i was diagnosed right and like that's at one point, the oncologist, who was a great oncologist with not good bedside manner, um, came in and told me that they had been a little overzealous in their scanning of me um, and that it could, they had just in fact passed a new law in Florida to prevent such things from happening. And he said that each time they had scanned me, I was one year, one lifetime's worth of radiation older. And so like deal with that, right? I mean, just deal with wow. that. I know. And so if I if it was 16 in a year and then 13 the following year, that's a number. So I, I went to my studio immediately after that conversation and was like, I guess I should just start counting. I mean, of course I was like, okay, maybe I should make it like radiation symbols, but I was like, that's too literal. And like, that's like the moment where I just started counting. And I know there's other artists who sort of use that like counting time, but it's like also like, that that number felt like I was in my own prison, you know? Mm -hmm. And I still don't know when I actually, as I've made more work that is heavily relies on repetition, I think I'm still counting. You know what I mean? Even though it's not that serious anymore. Sure. I can mm -hmm. only imagine it's such an abstract concept also to be faced with um, mm -hmm. such a sort of uncertain kind of parameters to be made aware of. Yeah. And yeah, I remember looking, I remember that series very well. And it's, in, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the body as site because those do, and I've heard you talk about sort of the way they become like landscapes. Yeah. Um, these sort of marks that form hills and ebbs and flows in them. And, and then you started cutting into them at one point, right? And they started sort of becoming sculptural as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually it's like a su slightly separate series, but it's completely okay. connected. Exactly what you were saying, and that makes so much sense. You should just write my artist statements because you understand <laughs> it better than me. But, um, I like yeah. So after we moved um, to Austin for my husband's graduate work here, I became pregnant with our first baby, which was really exciting. And I think, like we were saying, it was a continuation of the counting. I was just noticing all these new habits you have to get or, or get rid of and get right when you have when you're pregnant and I just remember like thinking like I have there I'm gonna drink so much water I there's no way I can drink this much water like there's no way and so I got these large pieces of black paper and then I poured all this like uh just like shimmery shiny inks and then like blue just like cobalt blue acrylic and then I stiffened them like as much as I could with those. And then I just 
started cutting what I thought looked like little droplets of water. Cause my whole idea was that I was going to like make something with uh, um, what I was cutting out um, with an X-Acto knife. And then it's really funny. Cause I, the whole pregnancy, I was like slaving over this, you know, like thing I'm like hunching over, you know, like my belly is making it really hard and I'm like exactoing. I had thought the work, you know what, this always happens to artists, right? You thought the work was this, but it's really this. Like, I thought the work was going to be like me, like somehow displaying on a pedestal each little piece of paper I had cut out. Mm. But then I realized, oh no, it's like the shell, right? So mm. as I talk more about that work, the how many days until something is a habit mm. work, it's really about the, the energy that you give to this thing inside of you. And then you keep giving it when they're not inside of you anymore. And so one thing that's really nice physically about the form is it is stronger after I cut as many holes in it as possible hmm. because of the different layers it has in it. And also it's, um, it doesn't get messed up by the wind, but yeah, that's about the malleability too. Some people often think it looks like metal or yeah, like a sculpture, mm -hmm. but I still have all the cutout parts though. I was like letting my, letting June, my daughter play with them the other day. I was like, I'm taking those back. Cause I was like, not ready to, but yeah, that's another iteration of like, that's where I go when I'm not sure what to make now. Mm -hmm. Like that's, I go back to that. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and your work is incredibly diverse mm -hmm. in sort of the moments that you, and the way you sort of think about this theme of marking time and often also in your previous work when I got to know you which was dealing with sort of histories mm -hmm. and narratives that mm -hmm. and alternative narratives and so if if we could kind of keep moving through the journey yeah maybe you could walk us towards how you arrived at your most recent work mm -hmm. which I, I know there's a lot in between what you were just describing right. and the households in quarantine, but maybe you can take yeah. us there. <laughs> we, um, so we stayed in Austin for my husband's whole graduate career. And then we moved to Michigan, to um, Western Michigan uh, by Traverse City to work at a fine arts boarding school called Interlochen School for the Arts. And there the landscape shift was so extreme for both of us as artists. My husband's also an artist. And then also like, I hadn't really ever thought I would live back in my own home state. And there was this like joy of just being close to my parents, being closer to my parents. But I would say it was an odd place to live as an artist because you're in a really, really rural area that's extremely for the most part, really conservative and really white. And I, and also the people are white and there's a lot of white around you, right? So there's, it's constantly, so I mean like our summers were like three months, like by summer, I mean like livable, go outside. Like I'm not saying, it was just like, so I, I think that being inside all the time is not unlike this time, right? Mm -hmm. During COVID quarantining, but you know, seasonal depression's real. I'm sure you know that, right? It's like mm -hmm. yeah. seasonal depression's real. And so I think there was like 
I did strip away a lot of color from my work when we were in Michigan. And that's when I started to just get obsessed with the like line animation and sort of drawings that just relying on line completely. And I will just point out that after my cancer diagnosis, I did not do performance art since then. I have not. And I think there's a couple of different reasons for that, but I didn't want to use my body anymore because I felt like it had betrayed me. So I shifted. That's why I think my media is, my mediums are so all over the place. So I got pregnant with Ernie with like then, and also applied for a lot of jobs while I was increasingly pregnant and was doing a lot of Zoom interviews, increasingly pregnant, which was like, I'm great. How are you? Can't tell, huh? great. Um, <laughs> um, and I was so excited to be hired back to UT Austin because it, we loved the community here. It's a really awesome school. And I just really craved, I loved Interlochen, but I wanted to be in public education again. I mean, that's my heart, you know? I mean, I missed working with kids, with kids from a variety that whose skin colors looked a lot different. I missed working with kids who were bilingual and grew up at the border. Like there are so many things. Um, so we moved here a year ago with a brand new baby and and now seven year old. And since coming back here, well, I feel like it's I moved here, and there was like a half a year that was normal times, <laughs> and then a half a year that was like the quarantine times and like the COVID nineteen times and like the killing of George Floyd and it's like these and Breonna Taylor and it's like these other things it's like so it's the time is operating very oddly for me I'm sure a lot of people can probably relate to that but when I think about how we how have we only been here for a year because it feels like just since the shelter in place in March for us has been a year or five years so the work I'm doing most recently I guess this does in some ways my idea was to reach out to other people and to have them describe their experiences of quarantine, of being households in quarantine, which is what I call the series. And in some ways, that was the first time the landscape and the questions I was asking was outside of myself again for the first time since cancer, because really it had been about motherhood you know, and that's, I guess, outside of yourself, but I wanted, I'm always someone simultaneously that thinks everything an artist makes is always some kind of self-portrait, but the drawings of households in quarantine are, people can submit like two to three sentences, no longer, because I don't want like too much, and I don't want them to give me any like visual references. I just have to like, if I know them, it's a little bit easier, but if I don't know them, I just like, figure out who, they, who I think they might be. And they're just really small drawings. They're all like eight by 10. They're here. Many of them are. And as I've moved through the series and as the quarantine now is like picking up again, you know, here in, in Texas, I've noticed the way people describe themselves, the tone has shifted a lot. And I'm trying to capture that in the drawings. The earlier ones were really, really reliant on sort of like humor, and like, we'll pull through this together. And now the, the more recent descriptions I'm getting, like, I think that people don't want to share, like, we're constantly having 
such bad news shoved at us all the time right now that I actually think that's why the, it was like a defense mechanism potentially for the first drawings to be like, oh, this is like shitty, this is goofy, but like, we'll get through it, you know? And so now the ones I'm getting, it's more, it, they don't, people don't feel like it's, they don't have to cheer themselves up anymore or like, it's not going to go away. So it's like better show the reality. I'm also really interested in how I am that community. I mean, they're all, they all could be you or me, right? Like home, trying to work from home with kids. What isn't, what, where I'm finding tension for myself right now is I haven't been able to attend any protests here in Austin just because of the baby and the seven-year-old. So there's this whole part of it that I haven't witnessed that I know some of my friends have witnessed, but I don't want to like be like, can I use you because you went to a protest? Do you, does that make sense? So I have all these like internal white guilt, fragile things that I'm like, mm-hmm. but I, I mean like the closest I got, I think is this one where I'm, um, it's it's actually of me and I'm trying to watch that I don't know if anyone else here uh out there listened to um watched the Sesame Street yeah the town hall coming together so I was sitting there trying to watch it my kid is on my phone you know what I mean and like the baby also somehow oh yes I remember seeing that one yeah yeah yeah. because I'm just like like that's the closest I felt like I could come to it because like that's the only way I mean, aside from reading a ton right now, I don't know. There's just a lot of questions that are inside your head when mm-hmm. right at this time more than ever. But this is a series that I'm going to keep going with because I always set rules for myself, right? And there's no reason the rule is now I won't stop until there's a vaccine. Well, I find what you're doing now really interesting to kind of be coming into in relation to a lot of the previous work that I remember from from your times of really engaging your work has always as you say there was a moment where maybe it wasn't as participatory but your work has always really relied on a community of voices and and participation Mm -hmm. and that previously manifested as performances when I knew you and it's evolved but I think one of the pieces that left the biggest impact on me (laughs) was when you worked at the Walters and you took the time to illustrate every single staff member who worked and you made everybody hand-drawn ID badges. That move, that gesture, I think speaks volumes to what your work is after. I feel like what you were doing then and what you're doing now is really capturing a sort of connection and personality that you're sharing with people or that you're teasing out of people also that feels like it's coming through in these quarantine drawings and uh, there's a lot I could say about that sort of generous practice you have in the way that you're paying attention to what people are going through and and I know that's been a big part of your teaching practice too right and I was catching up on some of the work you did in Michigan with your interlocking classes and the the healthcare experiences mm-hmm. and aesthetics of health yeah mm-hmm. care mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe you can correct me speak more to what oh, I I'm think that's, a, that's a wonderful the project you just mentioned 
is a perfect springboard to talking about aesthetics of health. So, and I also wonder how many of those, I should email Will Murray and be like, do you still have yours? Yeah. Um, I bet like, he does. I bet he does. He's sentimental. Um, but the, so that experience of wanting to, that everyone's deserving of art and everyone can be art. So there's so much about privilege, right? Who is able to visit an art museum? And who is who are the ones that are at the end responsible for the riches and the wealth of that museum? You know, and those men mostly, females too, they took their job really seriously. And I love giving gifts to people, but, but that's a perfect springboard to talk about aesthetics of health. So in 2018, I got a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, which is, they still give grants <laughs> to um, build this program and keep continue it where we interlocking partnered with our local cancer hospital up in very rural, again, really remote, as well as a assisted living facility. So seniors living with Alzheimer's, memory care, all different sorts of reasons they couldn't live on their own. The most important thing in that class for me was that it was really interdisciplinary for the, so that the students and that's maybe about to like I all of my training at Stamp School of Art and Design at University of Michigan and University of South Florida was all interdisciplinary. Like there was not there. It was just that's how you learned there, which I am grateful to so much now. But the students would we would bring in, say, the ballet. So I'm trying to think of the frog prince right okay so it was a frog prince and they are performing scenes from it on the infusion suite during pediatric infusion day mm -hmm. right so there's these moments that you can imagine like like why not a fine arts boarding school with some of the best and talented artists of all different kinds that's 15 miles away from a very rural cancer facility that is, that's a tension and that's a direct match in my mind. This was not art therapy. I want to make that more clear. I'm interested in aesthetics of health, which I'm actually about to begin here at UT as well in the spring. I'm interested in how actively witnessing art being made in front of you, how that may have qualitative and quantitative data that we can look at that may like lower blood pressure decrease needs for pain medication at the very least make you feel not like a patient for a second make you feel like you are someone at a concert it's also it was like you know not everyone uh, really struggled it was a struggle for the local community to be able to attend any of the performances at interlock and so one of the things we did was we would bring like a string quartet to like the lunch hour in the the main lobby the cafe and so i look at that as those students are serving right and their stage is really different but in some ways it's more of a stage than the stage that people pay for because closer we don't know how the sound is going to carry i would argue that when people don't know they're going to encounter art sometimes with certain kinds of art, if you hit the right combination, they are more open mm -hmm. and appreciative of that experience. I loved that we were serving those students. Who is their audience, right? 
it's not the only the people that could afford the tickets. Now their audiences are the cancer patients, their families, a four-year-old with leukemia, the caregivers, the nurses, the staff of the, you know, the security guards. That's why, sorry, that's why I was trying to link it in. The security mm-hmm, guard, mm-hmm. right? These Thinking are the, about the whole community. Thinking about exactly the whole community and how art is for everyone. And there are places that for me as a cancer survivor now, I have this like card, right? Where I can go in and be like, I've been, I wouldn't just do this anywhere. This is like really targeted. Like, I think it'd be very difficult if I wasn't a patient there to have the same trust. Like we went through this HIPAA training, we became official volunteers. I mean, just the idea now to be able to actually walk back into the the chemo infusion suite was extremely difficult to pull off. But once we did it and saw the reactions that we were getting, we just kept going. Um, And so, right, the whole community and who takes care of the place. So this isn't getting back to your idea about place. Like one of our biggest participants and critics was Paula and she was the environmental technician service because she had to like empty all the trash all the time. And Paula would always tell us when we would be curating shows in in this gallery, they gave over to us. And then she would be there telling us, well, it's not straight. And I don't know if they're going to like that one. By they, she meant (laughs) everyone else. I don't know if they're going to like, but I loved her so much. And then one day, so for our final show there, it's like Paula sit down and I put Ben Kwan, who I love. And, you know, it was like the best artist we had in the class. And I go, Ben, 20 minutes, draw her exactly. And she was so mad. She was like, Megan, you know, it's, it's like in the middle of her workday, but 20 minutes, she could, she could spare it. She spent more time yakking, you know, with everyone, she could spare it. But that, she was like, this isn't going to go on the wall, is it? And then it became everyone's favorite piece because they <laughs> all knew her, um, uh-huh. you know? But so moving forward, my goal here in so we're pairing the Department of Art and Art History here at UT Austin with Livestrong, um, which um, has like way shifted its focus. And now they are um, looking to become the premier like full service cancer center service. So they want to like also specialize in young adult cancers like what I had. And they are currently housed at UT, University of Texas, as part of Dell Medical. So it's a really nice moment where the art building is a 10-minute walk away from this other site. And so we're going to be starting that in the spring. And it will probably look different than it did before a pandemic. But it's a small, amazing inaugural cohort I've built of eight really, really empathic and thoughtful students. So... That's incredible. It's like you're, it sounds like you're training people how to take your approach yes. <laughs> to the world. And <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I think also, I hope you don't mind me drudging up these old no, projects, it. but it. it makes me think in a tangential way also about your sainthood projects. That you oh my do. God, yes which are different. It's talking about kind of a different thing, but it was sort of, I think, labor, right? Like, so, and maybe this is taking us in a different direction, but but the role of labor in your work, in that project, you were going through the processes 
needed to help me pray for people to become saints or well there is one it was like you had to so i was interested oh this is a long time ago i know (laughs) i wanted them to to first become beatified and then canonized Mm -hmm. because but there was a lot of you needed to perform a lot of different miracles for canonization and have them proven than for beatification. So it's a long process, but I did. I tried to follow as many rules, never got a response from the Vatican, but I think I did over like 200 people. Yeah. I, I wasn't just taking photos of prayer. I was right. like you know, knee, pads, knee pads for that prayer. Yeah. Again, it's kind of this, this emotional investment though, that mm-hmm. I think you were putting in on behalf of other people and sort of towards and engaging them. And, and then similarly with you know, and then skip ahead even just thinking about to the, to the kind of repetitive labor that's going into something like your, the counting cancer or yeah. the, sorry, I'm forgetting the name again. Um, how many days until something's a habit? It's all right. It's yeah, all yeah, yeah. labor. Yeah. And so that's interesting to me. I know. And it also <laughs> makes me wonder, like, I don't, as a mother of two, right. And like an administrator and professor right now, I'm like, hmm seems as though I'm making quicker work these days, right? <laughs> that whole, but so what, I, what I think I'm relying on, though, is something, is just um, creating something large through creating a lot of small things. So maybe uh-huh. this, you know what I mean? It's still, yeah. it's still iter- iterative, right? It's still, yeah. Right. Well, and now what I'm hearing is that so much of your labor has become in these social practices that are kind of, coming out parallel or out of your previous experiences right? and that which has always been there but now it's in this Mm -hmm. this new form and so speaking of labor (laughs) I'm not gonna ask about childbirth (laughs) not where I'm going (laughs) I wanted one of the things that I'm really interested in exploring with artists as we go through this series Mm -hmm. is thinking about you know, not just the way place or our homes may be infiltrating or suffocating or (laughs) making not possible our work or becoming new inspirations, but also the way that in relationship, because most of the people we'll be talking to have had experiences as residents here at Centrum or beyond Mm -hmm. and beyond like yourself. But I want to think about the kind of the shift in time and the way those practices are being tended to or mm-hmm. suffering as a result of our current times, mm-hmm. you know, both out of curiosity and also just for the sake of people listening to sort of learn new ways to mm-hmm. be thinking about their creative practice in this time. So what right. has that looked like for you to kind of make space or not? <laughs> Thank you for that. I actually think that goes back to like, I think what we were saying maybe before we, um, before we even started is like, I I don't think it's any coincidence that I made the rule for myself with these drawings of other people that if they ask, I'll do it. And that I keep, I'll keep posting like on Instagram, like send me more submissions because that I, I know I can hold myself accountable to another person more than I can to myself, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's like the, I, and I don't, maybe I didn't realize that until we were talking about it, but like, I think that, oh, I have to like draw 
Sandy in Wisconsin. I got to draw Sandy in Wisconsin today. Like I'm going to do it because I have to, right? So it's uh, like when, if it's for other people and it's not art for me, right? Even though it's for me, I will make time, right? And just will make time. It's interesting too, is like, I mean, I don't have a studio. I have a bedroom and I have a corner of it, right? But I also, um, just during the two hour nap the baby still takes, I just get my art supplies out. Look, look what just came, Michelle. I'm so excited. Oh, nice. So, and look at this puppy. Look at this. Sumi. That's Sumi. Can you, yeah. So for those listening in. For those listening. A I am brand new tad of arches. Yeah, it's on the block. It's in the block. Arch is so, it's, th- oh, 140 pounds and a giant, giant jar of black Sumi ink. The biggest I could get. The yeah. best money can buy. Um, but I'll go and I'm just going to sit beside June with whatever she's doing at the Ikea kitchen table that we have that is actually where I want to be doing art and just draw wherever she is, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. She's old enough now that she'll be like, what's that? Or like, that's wrong. You did that wrong. I just hit that with my daughter. And yeah. we were talking on a previous episode about that collaborative practice. Oh, and is I that think... what you call it? That's sweet. I call it, <laughs> shut up. I'm doing art. <laughs> yes. We have a whole like negotiation that's involved in terms of like when I'm helping and when I'm not. When I'm helping and when I'm not. It's like, I think like too, it's, I, a lot of that energy, right, overall is to trying to think creatively about how to keep your children, not push them away so much. I mean, to me, it's also like, I really love those artists that actually do truly collaborate with their kids. I was way better doing that with June because there was only one. But now I'm like, you know, like even for me to like sit there and like try to do um, blocks with Ernie is sometimes feels really creative to me because he's not judging me yet. She is with her Lego sets. If I miss one, if I miss one step, because that's not how my brain is. She's like, get out of here. Um, (laughs) But I do think it's different, you know, for different people. Like, like my husband, who's an artist, his studio is in the garage and it's so hot. It's like 109 degrees here right now. It's not finished. So he's, he's just, growing all of our vegetables like all of our produce that's like where that energy is going for him yeah yeah well I mean you hit on something too that I was sort of wondering about your work I I mean some of the drawings that I saw you sharing before the households in quarantine series were these really frank and authentic gestural captures of you in the throes of motherhood Mm -hmm. and kind of these very vulnerable positions or humorous interactions, which to me shows how you're working when you're not drawing, you know, like how you're kind of maintaining a consciousness about your practice. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Within, within your parenting. That's great. Is that, is that what's happening? (laughs) Could you just be my brain? Because that's a good way to say it. Right. Because it's like, if you know, you can't make something until 9 PM or 7 AM, you have to have your brain alive enough, your creative mind to be like, okay, just 
husband take a photo of whatever's happening right now? Like, mm -hmm. is that to me, if I have captured mm -hmm. something that as reference photo, right? Yeah. Um, so, but absolutely, you're right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, it's a very inspiring thing to see, a very powerful way to see anyone operating in the world to sort of like be both present in parenting and present enough to be also like reflecting on it and capturing it. Yeah. Which brings me to another thread that I sort of think is really fascinating about your work in regards to the way you, and you've talked directly about it, the way you're kind of interested in marking time or uh, marking moments in time. I'd love to hear more about how you've thought or not thought about like your role as an archivist or a historian, because mm -hmm. I know those are both things that have showed up for you. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, like, I think like I, I really love micro histories or histories that um, were falsified or, you know, cause I, and I think it's because I grew up not realizing that I was only learn, learning a certain very like whitewashed history of the country. Right. Like mm -hmm. thinking about, and so I've always just been really fascinated by, I guess, figures in history. Right. But I'm also really interested in how complicated as like the real individual was because there's the like talk about canonized right there's like the canonized historical figure. But then there's like all of the slaves they owned and it's like there's all of the the kids they had that never knew you know it's like, but I love I do think of myself as someone who has to make on this planet so that people knew I was here mm. and I can't think of any way to do that other than to like make work about an experience that I'm living. Mm -hmm. And like, I got really, really excited actually speaking directly about that. Um, the Austin History Center, when they reopen in the big public library downtown, they're going to have like a solo show of all the drawings as like, a, um, because it's like, because they want to show it as a an archive like an archive of the mm -hmm. time right they're going to be curating this show so for 2021 all of the shows they're doing are all the ways like photographers journal entries you know what i mean like and like artists made work in the midst of this and so i think that whether or not artists think of themselves as historians or sort of we're always forced into a historical timeline anyway, right? Because mm -hmm. of our history. Mm -hmm. Like when I watched, like I learned recently so many of the works I didn't realize that were made around the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I just like didn't know. And then you're like reading them really differently. And then, so so I think it's it's a bit problematic though too, because right now, even thinking about like the AIDS crisis in the eighties, like now, like I've, to me, it's like, even pieces Keith Haring wasn't making about, wasn't making about AIDS, like, yeah, now I read them because it's such been paralleled and, like, fixed in mm -hmm. books that this is what all his mm -hmm. work was about, right? Yeah. Um, so that there's problems with that, and I wonder if this is a moment where, as we're all decolonizing and deconstructing mm -hmm. curricula in art schools, where we can sort of problematize history about who's telling it, but the one thing I would say is like, I do do think of myself as a historian or archive or just a gatherer 
mm-hmm. you know, of things. But I also hope that I'm always like, I would never want it to be like, this is the only art that was ever made about cancer, right? Like this, I just hope I'm not like Keith Haring. I don't want, I know I'm going to be really famous, but I just don't want to become Keith. Well, I think that's, I think you're, I think you're good. I, I, I feel like what comes through in your work is always a loud proclamation of like, this is me talking about this, you know? And it's like either in the form of a, of a joke or, you know, or from my perspective, you know, it, 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 there's, yeah, I think you're good. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I could keep going. We're, we're, we're coming to the end of our time. And, And one of, but another juicy question that I've been wanting to throw out and you sort of touched on it already in a few ways, but, um, and you're talking now about the kind of automatic role that artists do get placed in, in terms of history and something that's on my mind a lot right now is, is our place in things right now? Like where is our place in, in what's happening? Because I think this time is an exciting time, a scary time, a hard time, (laughs) everything together. And within that, there's a lot of questions about what artists or creative folks can be participating in and how they can be showing up. So do you have thoughts about that for yourself? I'm actually on a task force addressing that right now for my university. So I mean, the biggest thing I can think of is, so for myself, I'm in a white artist and sometimes curator and a teacher, right? And an administrator. And I decide who gets the scholarships. And so I want to use every part of my privilege, which is stacked and has been given to me and I was born with it, to elevate Black Americans. So if I curate a show, I'm not going to have one Black artist. I'm going to reach out to 15. I am not, I also am going to be careful to not be a white savior. Mm -hmm. If I have the ability to decide the incoming freshman class of my university, I'm going to make damn sure that we are more than the five students we've had in the past, right? Like, like I'm going to throw the money at, at the students who deserve to be here and have internalized their own, like have internalized so hard that community college is better mm-hmm. or that, oh, I'm not an athlete. Like, so, so I'm going to like go there. I'm going to zoom with them. I'm going to call them because we need them here. And then we need art shows that include more black Americans, artists. We are also at the center of all the sculptures and the monuments being Mm, torn mm -hmm. down right now, right? Like is, I don't know who's, someone's written about that lately, I'm sure, but maybe there's a place for someone to come up with really exciting ways to melt bronze Mm -hmm. (laughs) and rebuild it into something, right? Like Mm -hmm. these artists are here to break things. Artists Mm. exist 
within institutions and can often make a lot of change within those institutions, artists also go off and start their own art school, right? Like art, like Black Mountain College. Like, like but I think we as artists need to be really examining if we have ever used the American black body in our work and benefited off of it. And I know, don't just mean monetarily. We need to really come to terms with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I, I don't know what, what artists of color, of black American artists must be feeling in this moment because they must feel like all the pressure's on them. So I have no idea what they, I mean, I have no idea, but I'm doing as much research as I can to figure out it's not a it's not you do one thing and racism's gone, right? And it's not that's why this moment has to keep going and lasting, right? I mean, you know, one of uh, my colleagues said, well, you know, say in the photography department we have been doing readings to make, um, to decolonize our curriculum. And I think that's great. And then I said to her, we have to have all the art faculty, all the college faculty. This needs to be a university statement that we sign that says it starts now. There cannot be students coming into an art and design classroom in 2020 and never learning about an artist that looks like them. Mm-hmm. Or half of the art should look like them. Because if they can't see themselves in your art history lecture, in your contemporary issues lecture, why do they think they belong? I told them they belonged when I got them here, right? And then I lied to them because they don't see themselves there. Mm-hmm. So that's all swirling around in my brain right now. Does mm-hmm. <laughs> that answer mm-hmm. your question? Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a lot in there that I completely agree with mm-hmm. and find in my own uh position. And mm-hmm. I think I think what you're speaking to is largely around how those of us in these positions that are situated within institutions that have benefited from white supremacist culture, mm-hmm. you know, what we can do to hold them accountable and mm-hmm be accomplices in the work. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing what that's looking like in your world and and yeah, onward. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. This yeah. Great. You said so many illuminating things that I didn't even know about what I made. Well, that's that's what dialogue does. <laughs> that's cool. right. Thank you for all that you've put out there and all the ways you show us what this work can look like. Thank you so much. Can't wait to see what you do next. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of On Air is Michelle Hagwood, Program Manager for Artist Residencies. Our cover artwork is by Leon Finley, and our music is by Tabor Dark. Centrum's Executive Director is Robert Berman. Centrum Podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. 
With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation.